Amen. Amen. I kind of sprung that on uh, MJ, and uh, I'm, I'm so proud of uh, how they did that song. But more than that, it's just a, it's an offering to the Lord. We come to the Lord and we say, hey, Lord, we want, to, we want to do this. And there's a message in there. There's a message in there that I want to share today. And, and it really is the idea of Mary, did you know? And I was just thinking about the, the, uh, the message this morning that I feel like the Lord had laid upon my heart for just this. And that song just absolutely lays it out there for me. Um, if you've ever rocked a child, um, that song becomes meaningful for you. If you've ever rocked a child and looked down into that child's face while it was falling asleep, while it was looking back up at you, while it was uh, cooing or giggling or wiggling around, you look at that child's face and you say, what is this child going to become? What, where is this child going to go? What are they going to accomplish? What are they going to do? And, and I don't know about you, for you, but for me and for my, my children as they were born, and I love little babies, um, and so it's nothing for me to be in the house carrying them around and singing over them and praying over them, and that's when I start. I began to say, Lord, what are you going to do? When we, when we um, dedicate our children to the Lord up here, we literally are praying, God, change the world through them. What are you going to do? And in that song, Mark Lowry and his friend that wrote that song together, they're looking or they're speaking to Mary just a little bit and they're saying, Mary, did you know the influence, not just the miracle of the birth, but the miracle of the influence that this child is going to have when it saves the world? And we don't often think that about our children. Let's just be honest. There are moments when we think our children are so full of the devil, we don't know if they're going to get to heaven. Um, and there's, there's times when we think that we just need to work the devil right out of their backside um, and see if we can just get some Jesus in them right now. you know. And we wonder if our children are ever going to be anything. There are times when I walk up to parents and I say, you have the most amazing children. And they're like, you know which ones are mine, right? And I'm like, I know exactly which ones are yours because when they're at home with us, they're tyrants. But you've raised them so that when they're out in the world, they're emissaries. And your children, as they walk with Christ, are wonderful. I was thinking about Mary, did you know? And I'm going to read to you from the book of Luke. There's going to be a lot of scripture today. I'm not going to turn to every one of them, but um, I, I just want to share some thoughts with you. Neil Armstrong's mom. You think when Neil Armstrong, Neil Armstrong was colicky and keeping her up all night, crying, and messing his little diaper, and, and she was like, one day you're going to walk on the moon. It's going to be great. Instead, she was saying, would you please just go to sleep so mama can rest? Mama needs some sleep. You think George Washington's mom said when he was born, this child is going to be a general? And he is going to start a new nation. We're going to send him across the ocean where I'll never see him again. It's going to be great. I'm going to fear for his life for years, but that's my son. Or did she just say, I want to raise him so that he will grow up and be uh, uh, in the king's army and live in England? Do you think? And do you think that Billy Graham's mom raised him up and said, this man will lead millions to Jesus. Or is she just another mom 
living another life, doing the laundry, trying to get dinner ready, making sure the chickens are fed. I don't know what, you know, Billy lived, but making sure the chickens were fed and the kids at least went out of the house looking decent, you know? What about that? I was looking at uh, something online from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and uh, there was this article that I'm, I'm going to read it to you. It's not going to show up here behind me, but I want to invite you to listen to it because I wonder if you know who Dr. Mordecai Ham is. Some of you will because you've studied this before. Some of you will because you, you've heard me reference him before. And some of you are like, no, that sounds demonic and like some you know, board game that people play. I don't know, you know, Mordecai. It's like, no, no. Dr. Mordecai Ham was an evangelist, and he happened to be um, doing uh, tent revival when Billy Graham got saved. It might not have been in his tent. Don't hold me to that part. But the article from the Billy Graham School of Evangelism, or excuse me, Evangelistic Association says this. The world already knows that Dr. Graham, Billy, was converted during a meeting conducted by Dr. Mordecai Ham in Charlotte, North Carolina. You think Dr. Mordecai Ham's mom thought that he would grow up and that he would lead Billy Graham to the Lord and Billy Graham would lead millions of... You see the influence that's starting to take place? Nobody knew that their kids were going to do this. They just hoped that they would grow up and be responsible and wouldn't embarrass them on Sunday mornings in church. Not that I ever worried about that, but, you know, I'm just saying. The world already knows that Dr. Graham was converted during a meeting conducted by Dr. Mordecai Ham in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1934. Billy Graham's father and T.W. Wilson Sr., the father of Billy Graham's um, um, associate evangelist, Grady, they promoted the campaign. So Billy Graham's dad and Billy Graham's friend, his dad, promoted the campaign that Billy Graham got um, saved at. Billy Graham has told the story of his conversion in numerous publications. Dr. Ham's version was confirm, confirmed by Billy's father, Grady Wilson, and by Grady Wilson, and, but he adds a few details. Dr. Ham relates that the two young high school boys attended our meeting. They thought that everything I said was directed their way, so they decided to take seats in the choir where I couldn't point the finger at them, and they didn't pretend to be singers. They just wanted to be behind me. So if you can imagine, there's a choir loft, and there's a choir up there, and two boys that had been at a meeting or two that were probably sitting in the second or third row finally just showed up early enough to go sit in the choir loft. And I wonder, because I'm just thinking that if MJ saw a couple of people standing over there in the choir loft who weren't singing and were not part of her team, she might have something to say about it. But there was Billy and his buddy sitting in the choir loft so that Dr. Ham couldn't turn around and do one of those, do you hear me? You know, like they did back then. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Come on, some of you are like, oh man, I just had PTSD from my youth. Don't do that again, Pastor Joe. Hold on. Okay, but there, there it is. The two young high school boys attended our meeting and they thought that everything I said was directed their way. So they decided to take their seat in the choir where I couldn't point my finger at them. And they did not pretend to be singers, but they wanted to be behind me. Grady Wilson agreed. Neither of us could sing. Dr. Ham continues and says, one night a man spoke to them during the invitation and said, come on, let's go up front. Billy and Grady both went to the altar. Billy was saved and Grady dedicated his life to Christian service. In the telling of his experience later, Billy Graham recalls how on first attending the services of our meeting, he was impressed with the crowd. He had never seen such a crowd nor such a big preacher. And Dr. Ham was a fighter, like a fighter, like pugilist. Okay, he was a fighter. 
And soon he had all he wanted. Billy Graham didn't like being told he was lost and going to hell. He got out of there as soon as he possibly could and said, I'm through, I'm done. But he was miserable all night and the next day, and he admits, I couldn't get there soon enough for the next night. As Billy Graham, in Billy Graham's thinking, at that time, his hero was Babe Ruth. So far as he was concerned, nobody ever attended revivals like ours, except a lot of old, effeminate men and crazy women and children. Our meeting changed his hero from Babe Ruth to Jesus Christ. And I recall, I told Billy and Grady, after they come forward, to sit in the preacher's section. Billy sat there for two months. The Lord seemed to be directing in everything, and what took place during the meeting didn't seem to have an earthly explanation. And Sarah, there it is. There's the story of Billy Graham showing up and going to a meeting, and Dr. Ham didn't know who Billy Graham was going to be, and Billy Graham's mom didn't know who Billy Graham was going to be, and, and, and Billy Graham's father and T.W. Wilson didn't know that the, the services that they were promoting were going to go on for months and months and months. You don't know what those children that you're raising are about to accomplish in the world. But your example to Jesus Christ of your, of your relationship to your children is going to be the most important thing that you give to them. And it's going to be referred to all through the rest of this message as the miracle of your influence. Because you can, in fact, change the world. We don't have a clue of the extent of the influence that we have on a friend or a neighbor or a neighbor's child. We don't know who we're sitting next to. You don't know what buying somebody a lunch that's hungry means. You don't know what building a bed for somebody in their house that doesn't have a bed to, for their children to sleep on is going to do to that family. But God does. And that's why I say to you, you know, I know it feels like every Sunday that every day writ, uh, ordained for you was written down in God's book, Psalm 139, before one of them came to pass because it's an appointment. Because God sees all things and he can inject people into circumstances if we will just yield ourselves to him. When God approached Mary, she did not have a clue to what it might mean to carry the Son of God. Mary simply said, I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your word be fulfilled to me. And then the angel left her. The angel told her, you know, all the things that, that he came to tell her. And she was only worried, not that there was an angel standing in front of her, but she was worried about the manner of the greeting when he said, don't be afraid. And she was thinking, what's coming next? Nothing in the scripture says she was afraid that there was an angel standing there. I am the Lord's servant. We're coming into Christmas. Can you say that to God? Can you say that and mean it? Can you legitimately say to the Lord, I am your servant. And in that moment, allow God to do whatever he wants to do through you by doing it with you. When you read the story of the disciples, we like to think that they're big heroes. They were just fishermen. They were lousy tax collectors. One was a thief. One was a zealot, political, you know, coming out his ears. And it's just like God used them. But as God used them and as they persevered and as their fervor caught fire, all of them left this earth in difficult circumstances. 
all of them. And yet none of them complained out loud in writing to any of us. One of the things that astonishes me as a Christian, not as a pastor, but as a Christian, is all the times that Paul recounts that he was in prison, that he was beaten, that he was shipwrecked, and he never said, get me out of prison, get me out of the water, get me out of the limelight, get me out of the eye, get me out of people's focus so they'll stop beating on me. He said, when I find myself in prison, help me to be a good preacher and help me to start a small group and a Bible study at prison. Help me to be more bold in the circumstances that I'm in where you and I would say, get me out of the circumstances. God, if you're in heaven, then why did you do this to me? Instead of saying, Lord, you led me here. Clearly, you knew I was coming. What do you want me to do? And that's the way we should be approaching things in our life. Listen, none of us want bad things to happen to us. I agree with that. None of us foresee broken marriages. None of us see wayward children. None of us see getting fired. None of us see ourselves changing jobs. None of us see ourselves moving across the country. None of us see ourselves doing that when we're playing with our friends basketball out on the hoop that's screwed to the garage. But when it happens, how do we respond? Do we respond by saying, I'm the Lord's servant. God, what do you want me to do here today? That was Mary's answer. About 30 years later, in the book of Mark, the scripture says, then Jesus entered the house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. We've been there. We've been there. Not like where Jesus was. But when we lived in a much smaller house, we had 77 college students come to our house one day after second service. 77 of them. We didn't cook enough dinner for 77 college students. And we didn't have enough, 1,400 squares, a 1,900 square foot house, about 500 square foot upstairs, and we didn't allow them to go upstairs. About 1,400 square feet, and there was 77 college students and a bunch of them were football players. And they take up space and they eat. And they eat a lot. So we knew what it meant to be packed in. It was funny to see three and sometimes four college students sitting on the stairs going up. They weren't allowed to don the landing, but they were snuggled in like golden retriever puppies. And they loved it. And we were like, pray that the mashed potatoes go. You know? Pray that the Lord multiplies the loaves and fishes. And that's where Jesus was. They weren't even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of Jesus because they said, He's out of his mind. That's Greek for he's crazy. What is he doing? So Mary heard that he's going to be the consolation of the world. 30 years later, she's going to take charge of him with some of her other children because he's out of his mind, in her opinion, according to the book of Mark. That's what we see going on. His mother had to have been wondering at that point, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? You know that if you're a parent, right? You've got that child and you're like, this child is the prettiest, most blessed child that's ever rode a school bus in Madison County. It is the best child. It is the sweetest child. And then you get a call from the teacher and you're like, you're not talking about my child. It's like, yes, they are. 
Because sometimes that's the case. And sometimes you're like, oh, my word, I had a friend. Um, I don't know if, if you know there was a, a country singer got saved. Um, I'll remember his name later. But um, he had an album called The Door. What was his name? Oh, it was, uh, yeah, Junior. Um, anyway, um, and, and it, this friend of ours has this child, and they're raising him to love Jesus, and he's walking through the IGA in western Oklahoma, screaming at the top of his lungs, you're going to go straight to hell, because that was the lyric of the song that they'd been listening to in the car from this album called The Door, um, and it was just like, okay, what about that? And at that point, you know everybody in the IGA is looking at you. You know they are. And you're like, we didn't raise him this way. We did not do this. This is what happens in public schools right here. This is why we said, no, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just teasing you. But you know how you are. You're looking for any excuse at all that that's not being reflected back on you. It's like that had to have come somewhere else. And here's Jesus and his mom says, you are out of your ever-loving mind. Why are you in there in such a packed-in um, situation? It's like, no. There's a story in the book of Luke that speaks of the opportunity, and, and it leads into this influence. 30 years later, an angel comes to Mary, tells her everything is going to happen, and 30 years later, we have this story in the book of Luke in chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. It says, soon afterwards, and I don't have to get into what it was going on, that it was afterwards, but soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was be carry, being carried out. The only son of a mother, and she was a widow. God, why me? Why did I lose my husband? Why did I lose my only son? It would have been his responsibility to take care of her as he grew and, and could do it, could make a living. Why? And so that's the situation. When the Lord saw her and his heart went out to her and, and he said, don't cry. And then he went up and he touched the coffin and those carrying it stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up, began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Wow. Holy cow, how come we don't hear more about this? There's a Christmas miracle right there. And it wasn't even Christmas. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding community. Absolutely amazing. And here is this picture, and we're looking at this story. She's devastated by the loss, this, this widow, by the loss of her husband, and now she's lost her son. She's probably prayed her heart out um, before he died. And then it was over. God did not specifically answer, answer her prayer. And at the point that your child is dead, at the point that you wrap them up, at the point that you put them in a coffin, at the point that you put them on people's shoulders and start carrying them to the gravesite is not the point that you expect God to jump up and do something about the struggle that you're going through in your life. But it is exactly those times when God shows up and does incredible things. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know why he doesn't do it for everyone. Because I'm just Joe. But I know God still does things that are beyond explanation and way beyond comprehension. This woman did not come out of the city following her son looking for God. 
She was done with God. She had prayed. It didn't work. It was over. Nothing else was possible. Nothing except burying him. She was crushed in her spirit. She never asked Jesus to do a licking thing. She didn't come to him and say, Lord, if you can. And Jesus said to her, woman, if I can, like that one man did for his son. She was going to bury her child. And yet she received more than she could ever have imagined, ever dreamed of, or ever repaid. God doesn't do things over and over and over the same way, again and again and again and again, so that we worship the way. God is God, and I don't know why. But when your hope is at its end, God is ready to get started. I believe that. When you get to the place where you're chasing God and you find yourself in a situation where it just seems insurmountable and you can't imagine that God would still, could still, might still intervene, I'm telling you, he's ready to get started because nothing is impossible with God and with God, all things are possible. That's what the scripture says. I can just preach, teach, and share with you what God is saying. When God was giving Mary a miracle and affirmed that miracle by another miracle that he gave to Elizabeth, he was setting up the miracle 30 years in advance for the woman whose son was going to die because time was nothing to God. He lived outside of it and had already experienced that child's death. And he was setting up a miracle when the angel was telling Mary, listen, your son is going to be the consolation of the world. And so then Mary didn't have any clue that he was going to touch a child that belonged to the widow of Nain. And we don't know what God began doing 30 years ago in our lives to touch them today, to get ready for tomorrow to inject himself into your circumstance right now but we know god sees it we see god do miracles in the bible but what about the average person and i still say if we look it's there did mary anticipate what it meant to raise the sacrificial lamb to foster, if you will, the Son of God. Take the lamb in on the 10th day. Sacrifice it on the 14th day. Three days the little lamb lives inside of your house when you're preparing for Passover. Then on the third day, the fourth day, however you count that time, you kill it. And suddenly you've got Easter and Passover. 30 years of raising Jesus. Three and a half years of ministry. Three days in the tomb. But to the woman who was following her son out to the gravesite, Mary's miracle became her miracle. The miracles of God, when we think about Christmas miracles, the miracles of God are never just for you. And if you see it that way, I would encourage you to back up and rethink it. When God does something big like this in your life, he's wanting to change the world, not just you. When God blesses me with a miracle, he's doing something bigger. So open your eyes and look around. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of, of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there, the disciple and, and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John talking about himself, standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, where is your son? Well, her son was talking to her. Woman, excuse me, here is your son. And to the disciple, he said, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. John had no clue that he was going to get another mom. God, John had no clue that he was going to end up taking care of Jesus' mom, and we don't know for how long that he did, because sooner or later, John ends up 
almost getting boiled in oil to death. He did get boiled in the oil, but then he ends up, you know, on the island of Patmos. And he dies there. Where's Mary? The miracle that was set up allowed John to be used as well. Mary's miracle died. The miracle for the world was realized, and God forgave you and I. In the book of Romans, Paul says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all the people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man many will be made righteous. It's a Christmas miracle. In that one instant when Jesus was willing to be crucified, we went from his birth to his crucifixion. In that one instant when he was willing to be crucified, he, the miracle is that he took on our sinfulness and the scripture says, became sin for us. He did not just pay the price. He became sin for us. And the scripture will record that he made a great exchange where he became our sin and we, according to the scripture, became his righteousness. And that righteousness, when we surrender to it, does not come and go and come and go and come and go with our struggles. When we surrender to it, then it's just time for you and I to live up to that which we've already received, Paul will say. It's ours. The Christmas miracle of influence what about that it changes the course of a person's life it's said that the average person influences six people a day there are six people every day that you run into that you have the opportunity to make a difference with and when we think about that we think about our testimony the honest weight of preaching the gospel is that people will hear the voice of god and they will make a decision that changes the whole course of their life you ever stop and think about that when somebody says to you and you're having coffee, let me ask you a question. Are you prepared, like Mary was, to say, Lord, use me as you want to use me. Let it be unto me as you have said. I am but the Lord's servant. Lord, how do you want me to do this? Because when you're having coffee and you're answering that question and people begin to make life-changing decisions, they change jobs, they marry somebody, they don't marry somebody, they go off into missions, they go off into a different state, their world gets turned upside down. When you begin to influence somebody, it changes the course of a person's life. It does. Peter says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Look at this verse, verse 11. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so as in the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And there's just a place there that says we're still doing this for God. We are attempting to change the course of a person's life as as we continue to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. James says, not many of you should be teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we'll be judged more strictly. So as we begin to teach, as we begin to preach, as we begin to lead, as we begin to share, we need to own the weight of the fact that we have the opportunity to influence people, and God recognizes it so much that he says, hey, we need to be careful that we're doing it right because we're going to be held accountable. One of the scariest things that people can say to me is, hey, I was in church uh, uh, three years ago and you said, and that scares the living daylights out of me. 
because they're about to tell me what they did as a result of it. And I begin to say, God, please let it have been something holy and righteous and not part of an illustration that I get lost in. Please let it be. We know that a Christmas miracle of influence builds the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 18, it says, See that you do not despise one of these little children, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hill and go look for the one that wandered off? And, he finds it, and if he finds it, truly I tell you that he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that didn't wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish." In the same way. You read this parable, and then in the same way, this is God. It is God who sent Christ down here to be Emmanuel, God with us, to be raised for 30 years, to go, and his whole goal was find lost sheep. That was his whole goal. Real quick, some sheep are lost, and they know it. Some sheep are lost, and they don't know they're lost. And some sheep are lost, and they want a, a, a Savior. The sheep that are lost and know it, sometimes they just run off. The sheep that are lost and they don't know it, they're just wandering around trying to find some more grass to eat so that they can be happy in the world because they think that's what life is all about. And then there are sheep that recognize there's a heaven and a hell and they don't want anything to do with heaven. They just want to live their life here. They're not anticipating hell. But the whole point of Christ coming to earth is that he came to find lost sheep. Paul would say, even of sinners, of whom I'm the worst of whom I am the worst. It builds the kingdom of heaven when we use our influence in miraculous ways to see people come to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior. Why do we build beds? Because we want to share with people the love of God, but we're looking for the opportunity to pray, to them, pray with them and then give them an invitation to church. Why do we hand out food? Because we want people to know that God still sees them and we're looking for the opportunity to pray with them and invite them to church. See, why do we do what we do? Why and how are we using our influence? Because the last thing I want to share with you and then close this thing down is that the Christmas miracle, the miracle of influence, has a miraculous trickle-down effect of spiritual economics. Spiritual economics. If, if 10, roughly between 300 and 350 people are going to church physically in the building over the last little bit, and there's, I don't know how many online. I don't, I, you know what? We're doing church with the people that gather together. Okay, we're not chasing number. But, we're, but just in my head, if we want to influence our county, if there's 300 people and 10% of them, 10% of them invited somebody to the Lord in one year's time, then at the end of the year there would be 330 people, Right? So in two, two, or excuse me, 2022, we could grow to a solid 330. 23 would be 263. 24 would be 399. 25, it would be 439. 26, it would be 483. 27, it would be 531. In seven years, nine years, in nine years, there would be 777, 776. That's like 1776. No, 776 people. And I'm not sharing that because numbers are a big deal, but if you don't think numbers are a big deal, then don't look at your bank account anymore online. Just write a check. See, numbers really do matter to you, don't they? And yet, for some reason, we say, why do numbers matter to the church? Let me tell you why. Because a number is a soul. 
And the only number that should matter to the church is one. And that should be one more. One more. Our influence should be the desire to see one more come to the salvation knowledge of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Christmas is about one more. Christmas is about baby Jesus coming down here to find lost sheep that don't know they're lost, that want to be lost, and that are lost looking for a Savior, but in His timing in their life. According to Billy Graham's staff, after he passed away, more than 3.2 million people responded to the gospel messages at the rallies that he was a part of. And who knows about the Mordecai Ham events? I don't know if he was a good preacher or not. Never heard him speak, never taken time to listen. But Mordecai influenced that kid. And that kid influenced millions of people on behalf of the kingdom of God. I wonder if Mordecai Ham's mother dreamed of her son leading all those people to Jesus as a result of a kid hiding in the choir so the preacher wouldn't point his finger at him. There's worse places children could hide. The choir is not a bad one. Who influenced you in your relationship to Jesus Christ? Who influenced you? As we think about a Christmas miracle, it's a miracle the amount of influence that we have, not over people. We don't, we don't have influence over people. We have influence with people to encourage them, to, to sow hope into a time when hopelessness abounds while we're, we're singing Noel. We live in a world where hopelessness is just everywhere. People are saying, somebody please show me Noel. Somebody show me Emmanuel. Somebody show me that living is worth it. Somebody show me that my life has purpose. Somebody show me. Listen, you could be 85 and not know that there's still somebody that God is going to bump you into that you're going to influence. You need to be here. You need to find hope. You could be eight and you're just going to invite your buddy to church and you don't understand the influence that you have by extending an invitation to your friend from school. You have purpose for being on this planet. You have purpose in the hand of God for continuing to push the message of Jesus Christ. Even if people don't respond, you keep inviting. You keep sharing. And it's not that you're trying to beat them down. You just want them to see you living it out in such a manner that it makes a difference. Not by throwing rocks at them, but by giving an invitation. There are lost sheep all over the place looking for Christmas. And you might be one of them this year. You're saying, Joe, Pastor Joe, I'm just not feeling it yet. I'm just not feeling it. Well, 
Today is a day when we want God to do something in your life as much as we do in the rest of the world. I have influence with the prayer team. I do. I can mark my thing and tell them when to come forward so that they're up here already. And I want to encourage you that you're facing something. And Christmas doesn't feel like Christmas because your hope is slipping away. And if that's you today, we want to pray for you. We do. If you're feeling dry and parched where your hope is supposed to be helping you feel full, we want to pray for you today. So I'm going to pray. We're going to go into this next song. And these people want to pray hope into your life. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you right now, we thank you for the influence of heaven on Mary's life. We thank you for the influence of Elizabeth on Mary's life. We thank you for the influence of Jesus when he was 12 upon the church leaders or the, the synagogue leaders' lives. We thank you, God, for the miracles that Jesus continued to do. We thank you for the influence that you gave to the disciples. We thank you for the influence that you gave to the everyday people. God, I thank you for the woman at the well who heard people say to her, we came and heard him. And we don't just believe because of what you said anymore. Now we believe because of what we've heard ourselves. That there comes a time, God, when each of us is captivated by our own relationship to you. I just pray that we would use that influence into the lives of other people to love them. To care desperately for them. Not to judge them, but rather to invite them. We just ask and pray that you would be with us this morning. Jesus' name.